I've been asked by the FBI, I've been asked by the police to help. What did the FBI or the police want help with? Nah. Ladies and gentlemen, the incredible Dan Brown! A psychological illusionist. Doing extraordinary television and even better live shows. Darren is a national treasure. Welcome to the show. The story we tell ourselves is not what's real. Like, for example, I did a show called Miracle. The Lord has his work cut out tonight. And the second half was healing. The woman came up and she'd been paralysed on one side of her body since she was four. In floods of tears because she could move her left arm for the first time. What you're seeing is that it's the psychological component of suffering, right? Like, nothing's happened, nothing's changed. But their relationship to their suffering, that's been made to change. It's not the things in life that cause your problems, it's the story that you tell yourself about them, it's the judgments that you make about them. There's a lot of people that are trying to sell you on this bullshit that they can take your traumas or your, your insecurities to zero. I've never seen it happen. We've completely obliterated the idea of just fortune and life. Sometimes life's throwing stuff back at us that we have no control over, and anxiety is still somehow the demon. But, you know, without anxiety, how do you know to change anything? You know, you can't do that without embracing anxiety to an extent. Your work is predominantly based in psychology, right? So have you ever done anything and thought, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> Don't go home and start doing that. Two things come to mind. spent the last few days reading all about your childhood oh truly fascinating thank you I actually i've actually got a picture here of you um how strange that you have that picture yes that's me with a um a parrot on my shoulder graph that you have this little boy yes what do i need to understand about about him and the world he lived in and the way he saw the world to understand you what do you need to understand well i was an only child till i was nine uh so I guess that's kind of a that's a pretty formative thing, isn't it? Um, quite creative, like always, always drawing and building things, Lego. Um, always been a bit of a people pleaser, and maybe that at that age, kind of yeah, sort of happy. Didn't didn't have a lot of friends. There wasn't like a didn't have a big gang. I never really did. I've always gone through life just with sort of a, a small number of of, of good friends. Uh, but I think that's when I, that feels like a happy, a happy time to think back on. I remember sitting with Jimmy Carr and him telling me that um, people often think of comedians as being like they're depressed, so they're trying to impress other people to mm. get some kind of thrill for their own sort of self gratification. But Jimmy said to me, he said, "You should actually ask which one of my parents was depressed that I was trying to impress to understand how I became a comedian." Mm. And I, I wonder, in your, you know, you said that you're a bit of a people pleaser. You clearly had this huge affinity towards entertaining and getting the reaction back from people, the mm. amazement. Where where did that start? Do, can you have you pinpointed where that started in your childhood? Yes, I think I could. So when I was at school, so my dad was a swimming teacher at school, and uh, he and I wasn't very sporty, so I kind of um, it shielded me from being like. Uh, bullied as a as a non sporty kid, but I didn't love school mainly because of that. I, so I found a lot of the kids, the sporty kids, quite intimidating and, and so on. So I kind of like, but dad teaching there helped. And then when I got to, and I was I was in with the wrong group, the um, the sort of classical music loving group or the Puff Gang, as we were less charitably known. Um, didn't even like classical music, so it was <laughs> a pretty miserable group to be stuck with. Um, in sixth form, I remember everybody sort of seemed to grow up suddenly and become a lot more uh, friendly. And 
so I kind of, uh, I sort of exploded in a way into sort of like a, a attention seeking, and I went from being very sort of quiet and a bit a bit intimidated by these sort of uh, kids to sort of um, suddenly they seemed to sort of you know like me or at least you know they, they were fine. So I I. I started doing impressions of teachers and I would draw caricatures of them and I was definitely, I became a kind of, really, I would imagine quite irritating, certainly to some of the teachers, um, attention seeker. So I think it all happened around then. Um, and then uh, it just sort of then progressed into university. Most of my 20s was um, probably, a lot of it was around, you know, based around that. Uh, and it, it was quite a handy thing, you know, if you're going to perform, it takes care of that need to just sort of, you know, just kind of impress. I think it was probably a, a good thing. Were you picked on or teased or anything in school before that point? No, I said, cause I think because my dad taught there, it helped. But I was I was definitely, you know, always chosen last for the teams and, and things, hated uh, sports and so on. And there were a couple of kids that were probably, I mean, generally fairly nasty anyway, but yeah. I certainly got uh, a, a, a bit from them. But no, I think I think I sort of did all right. I think I generally didn't enjoy school that much. And I felt like I was sort of, um, I said, intimidated. But I don't, I don't really remember ever getting sort of, I never got beaten up or bullied or no one was making my life particularly miserable. I think it was just the general feeling of not quite fitting in. And religion. I was incredibly religious when I Were was... Were you? Yeah, and then I yeah. lost it at about 18, became incredibly atheist. Yeah. And you, I read a similar sort of journey in your story at six or something you'd asked your parents if you could go to bible reading. that's right mrs whittaker one of our teachers at school was uh i really liked a lot and um she ran it was called crusader class but it's basically like a sunday school thing um and because uh, i was six and she asked me if i wanted to go to it and i just sort of presumed every everybody did i didn't know any different so i said to uh I asked my parents if I could go, and they said, yes, of course. So I did, and then by the time I realised that, oh, no, no, this is actually, like, a, a, a thing that I now believe in, it was sort of, I was pretty much inculcated, so it was uh, hard to step out of it. But I did eventually, yeah, university. So many years later, I, uh, through doing hypnosis first and magic, and they, they always give you quite a sceptical outlook on things because you just see how people fool themselves and... and so you sort of naturally start to view a lot of belief systems, I think, through those eyes, including your own. I don't know how it was for you, but I... Um, and also the very idea of doing hypnosis, um, I just remember that was... Because I was a member of the Christian Union in my first year at university. I went to Bristol, and they were just totally up in arms. I had I had um, members of the... that. Uh, Christian Union at the back of one of my shows exorcising me and casting out demons whilst I was hypnotising people on stage. So again, all of that just sort of uh, made me quite... just just helped with the sort of general scepticism. It took a little while to properly come out of it. In fact, that the Richard Dawkins book, the, the God Delusion, came out around the time that I had sort of mentally made that step but didn't quite maybe have the sort of proper language for it. So that was that was a helpful book, actually, as I'm sure it was for many people in terms of giving that lack of belief a kind of a structure. It was for me one of the very sort of pivotal books in my mm. um, life when I when I was about 18 years old. Yeah. Um, I also read about, like, compulsive behaviours from your childhood, things like knocking your knees together and... 
yeah a series of other things really twitchy yeah a little on that sort of kind of Tourette's sort of scale I think there's a there's a there's a wedge that ends with um, quite severe things but a lot a lot of people have that experience of um, making little funny tickly noises in the throat or having to you know not step on the cracks and uh, then there's all the kind of OCD thing that uh, that starts to get accompanied by feelings of dread and so much I never had that but yeah I was twitchy and I, I, I find a lot of um, kind of creative creative kids are I don't, I don't really know what what it is it's a it's a seems to be a form of auto suggestion um it's like when you get you get the idea in your head and then it's very hard to let it go and sometimes i i get it now sometimes i get it on stage because there's a certain amount of, there's a lot of muscle memory with doing a stage show so if you've if something if a little twitchy thing has crept in at one point during the show it'll just creep in every night um so i still kind of uh still aware of it um little more over the last few years because obviously it's been such a you know weird few years for everyone's mental health so I've noticed it more than I have before um but uh yeah that, and it was quite it was a it was a lot my parents were quite despairing with it I think it's a very painful thing to watch a child do and not know what were they watching? how to help knees knocking sniffing terrible sniffing <laughs> yeah like re- but really <laughs> Really loud. I went to see a um, Alfred Brendel, the pianist, playing in Berlin once when I was uh, studying out there, I think, or did my gap, gap year, I think it was, out there. And just, I mean, this guy's playing the, I think it was the Beethoven piano sonata. It's just him on his own on the stage at the Berlin Philharmonic. And there's this incredibly loud sniffing that I'm doing. And by the second half, everybody had cleared out. I, I was just basically a whole empty area of the audience. But yeah, just it's such a... Bizarre thing. Um, you just can't really stop it with the best will in the world. You can't stop yourself from doing this, this, these things. And it's um, and also you don't have the language for it as a kid. That's that's the worst part of it. You don't have the language to explain that it's a compulsion. It, you sort of feel like you're in control of it. You so you feel like therefore the only only thing you can say is that you want to do it. But you don't want to do it because it's horrible. You really really want to stop. And it's it's hard and frightening because you can't articulate it, and it um, uh, and I, I think there's no answer to it. I think it just it sort of passes. As you've um, as you've matured, has your perspective of your childhood evolved? Because I've found that mine certainly has. It's almost like with with a bit more wisdom. I say that I'm 30 years old now, but with a little bit more wisdom, I've I've kind of have a different perspective now on the events of my childhood. At one point, I would have kind of narrated them differently, but now I see different sort of truths and through lines in my early experience? I think I'm quite fond of my memories of myself as a child. And I... um, It felt like there was quite a clean break. Once I sort of went off to university, it felt like life sort of stopped and started again. So I... When I think back to my kind of... um, the sort of story of myself that I guess I'm sort of quietly living out in the back of my head, I sort of don't really go much beyond... Uh, university age um, and I'm, I'll happily find anything excruciating like you know more than you know anything I've said or done 10 minutes ago I find that quite easy um, and that feeling I suppose kind of gets weaker and weaker the further I go back in terms of finding myself you know embarrassing or, I, and then by the time I get to childhood it's all perfectly all feels fine I mean I'm aware as I said that I was kind of 
would sort of just get on with my own things, but nothing. I, I, uh, I think I was sensitive. I think I still am. I was quite a sensitive child. I used to, I used to, I did used to cry a lot. I know that makes me sound unhappy, but I, I used to. It didn't take much to make me cry, um, and I think I probably retained a sort of. Uh, sensitivity, which is sort of interesting because I write a lot about stoicism and mm. a lot of the things I think people you people do tend to write about the things that, you know, that they either need to learn for themselves or are learning because, you, you know, you, you express those things um, often better because you're discovering them for, your, for, your, for yourself. Um, so uh, perhaps like a lot of stoics, I'm you know, secretly quite... Uh, Quite sensitive too, so I remember that, but not not um, not really unhappy, not not particularly blissfully happy either, but just a, a kind of fairly content, solitary kind of kid. That sensitivity. Um, I've always wondered if if we're particularly taken by the applause, are we therefore also taken by the criticism? So people that end end up committing their lives to being like public entertainers and living for the response and the reaction that they, their work has, are those then also the people that are most susceptible to when, you know, the opposite of applause? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes, I guess so. You're, you're, you're definitely putting yourself out there, aren't you? If you you perform in any sort, you are kind of, you are um, opening yourself up to both extremes of reaction. But it wasn't really about that for me. I... I um, I think it was about uh, control was a big part of it. And also as a sort of, um, like I didn't come out till I was actually sort of quite late in my 30s. Um, and I think around the time that I was getting into the hypnosis, so that was, you know, sort of university time really. Uh, and I think, first of all, it was, and this was all wasn't clear to me at the time, but with hindsight, that the control aspect of it was very um clear uh and that clearly ticked well if you watch a hypnotist hypnotizing people i mean it's just the whole thing it's a big exercise in in control and i think i sort of that was appealing to me although i didn't know it in that i didn't it didn't strike me quite in that language at the time but i think looking back um that was helpful um and also i think if the, the old um outmoded cliche of the the gay man in particular being, you know, a hairdresser or a interior designer and all, all of those sort of horrible old cliches. What they have in common, actors as well, is the, um, the notion of uh, um, being able to create dazzling surfaces because they, they deflect people from the, the more difficult. If you're feeling shame about, you know, what's underneath. Um, and I think magic's very good for that as well. You know, you're, you're sort of creating this bubble around yourself this sort of this um you're literally hiding behind a trick and people will look at that trick and go oh gosh you're amazing how do you do that you're amazing and that's a very appealing thing a lot of kids get into magic just because they're underconfident um and a lot of people even going through magic into adults they they've learned to rely on that to impress people and haven't had to go back and just work through normal social skills that most people do so it's it's a very appealing thing i think all of that was all of that was helpful to me as somebody that was not out and you know kind of working all that stuff out use the word shame there it reminded me of listening to your audiobook where you talk about 
those two kids beating you up in your sleeping bag. I can't remember the. Oh yeah, the yeah, that's wearing. right. Yeah. And one of the lines you said in that section of the book is that you were very good at. I think you said embodying shame, but I know that's not the exact word you used. But that mm. you were very good at like into holding shame. You were full of shame. I think was the the um, the message. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but. Um... Yeah, it kind of it, it creeps up on you. I certainly, I, I, I find now it, it's, um, yeah, I can ease. I'm, I'm prone to it. You know, if I feel I've uh, upset my partner, I'll, it's, it's shame that I'll go to rather than defensiveness or, you know, I really, yeah, I just, I, I'll easily, I can easily get back to a feeling of, like, oof, I've, you know, I've been bad. I've just sort of let this person down. Is that what? What does shame mean to you? Because I think I've been using the word a little bit without um, a very focused definition. I've been saying that I felt a lot of shame because I was the only like black kid in an all-white school, and we were the poorest family, and so that feeling of shame turned into like a motivation, which made me want to become a happy, sexy millionaire. But what does shame mean to you in that context? Well, I suppose if you distinguish it from embarrassment, embarrassment is sort of where you sort of you let yourself down in front of, or you you. It's it's a feeling you're going to get from other people. They're they're important in that. It's how you've appeared before them. Whereas I suppose shame is how you've appeared before yourself. Yourself that you've sort of let something down within yourself. It's that, isn't it? Um, uh, but I think the experience of it is just a sort of um, it just becomes an easy resting place. Whatever it is, but it might be for someone else. It could be anger or fury or whatever if there's just a, a an emotional through line that you've that was a familiar place when you were young it's just you just find yourself settling back into that and i suppose part of getting older is recognizing those kind of things aren't they recognizing ah oh, that's that is a you know a needless pattern and as you said with your own experience with that can those things can be really helpful they can provide a real impetus and a motivation to um you know to do things you wouldn't have I mean like not not being out all that energy was going into creating this Mr. Magic kind of persona and I you know although and although it's easy to say you know you should always always come out and all the rest of it of course those things are important too but I don't think I'd be I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now I don't think if if that had been an easy ride you know um shame being a, a a familiar resting place as you kind of describe it and you said that kind of starts in your childhood I just want to be because I want to make sure that I'm clear on the context here mm. that that has a familiar sort of um, history in your childhood because of the social dynamics of your childhood because you felt like a bit different and a bit like a loner is that what you're saying or is there other dynamics with parents where they I, no I think it's specifically with sort of the the gay thing I think I think I think that's what it is I think if you feel and hopefully it's different now. It's just you know, it's going back a bit. I'm 51 now, so but if if you feel like those things are just embarrassing and awkward, and you're kind of you know, it's not like you really get to. Well, you're finding it out in real time about yourself, aren't you? So there's just uh, it becomes an uncomfortable center of everything that starts to affect so much of what happens on the surface. And there's a real experience, I think, if you're not out which i've recognized in many friends as well but there's a bit of just a bit of a bubble around you because you're sort of you're having to maintain a kind of a um a sort of curated exterior and and part of that then is then what's happening underneath is is uncomfortable and difficult and feels shameful um 
So I think that's it. I think that's where I don't remember feeling that as a kid. As I said, quiet and so on, but I don't remember feeling that as an experience. But it just sort of just kind of crept in. And the more the more I sort of um, uh, kind of was leaning into the magic persona thing, the more the the more the outside becomes sort of you know the the, the harder and more sort of um, uh, opaque this sort of exterior presentation becomes. I think the, it goes hand in hand with a more shameful interior. Until in the end, you just sort of go oh, fuck that and just sort of let it all be fine. Was was there a point? And this might be a really naive question as a straight guy. But was there a point where it became crystal clear to you that your your sexual preference was different, or was it s- slow sort of realizations and? Yeah, it was kind. Of, um, it's sort of because you can never really climb into anyone else's head yeah, and sort of understand what their experience is. It's 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 sort of um, it's often difficult to really know. And of course, I, at the time, I was also a proper Christian, um, mm-hmm. which uh, slightly kind of messes the thing up and just slightly gets in the way of the whole thing i had a friend who went through the um some of that kind of uh living waters movement which is the kind of gay conversion it's got called gay conversion therapy it was a bit more subtle than that but it nonetheless is basically that so he was going through that and although i didn't i was kind of um skirted it a little bit because i was his friend and you know it was something we were talking about a lot um so all of those things and obviously, by the way, it doesn't work, just in case, yeah. <laughs> in case anyone's was wondering. Um, I mean, I went in straight, it worked for me. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was sort of, um, I don't know, I don't, there's never just a clear moment. It's just, uh, I think as I just got in the public eye, I thought, I don't want this to be some weird sort of thing that's like a secret. Um, so, uh, in the end, you come out of it, and you, you come out about it, and then actually, the, uh, the, the joy, the reason why it's liberating, at least it was for me, and probably, hopefully, most people now, is that people just don't care. Like this thing that you've carried around and that experience, that shameful centre that's there. Again, shame is a really strong word, but nonetheless, it is kind of just this sort of awkward thing. Uh, eventually, when it, when you sort of are open about it. It's just people don't care. Why? Why would they care? So that's that's the lib. That's why it's liberating. It's not because suddenly you can, you know, spin around in the street with your shopping bags. It's um, it's just that oh, no one cares about your own difficult private stuff in the best way. So actually, and you've done the big one. Like you've so now anything else after this will be will be fine. That, I think that's why it's a liberating thing. I read a quote. I think it was in the Telegraph, where you'd said that um, maybe the journalist was commentating that. Um, Something as simple as mislaying your keys can trigger a whole new wave of self-hatred. God. That was me saying that, was it? Uh, yeah, that's just fury, though, isn't it? When you can't find a sock or you can't find your keys or your pen. Um, self-hatred, I mean, is a strong strong word. Uh, I think the piece... Maybe, might- yeah, maybe it does. Yeah, I probably would. Yes, I would reflect it back on myself rather than being angry at... My partner, anybody else who's probably lost it, that's what he'd do. He'd be angry that I, I must have put his keys somewhere because he can't find them. I would just be, yeah, beat myself up for why am I always losing stuff? Why can't I remember where I put things? Yeah, I definitely would do that. Interesting. I wouldn't. You wouldn't? No, <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't. Re- I don't think it would reflect on my, my own 
self-image uh. if I lost the keys. Or even if it did, it wouldn't negatively affect. I think that's right. just who I am. That's who I am, yeah. I'm unorganized versus yeah. like, oh, I'm so unorganized. I hate, I hate that about myself. Yeah, well, I, I don't know when I said that. I, that was probably quite a while ago. And uh, I don't know if I'd necessarily be that hard on myself now. Plus, sometimes you exaggerate these things for rhetorical effect. Um, Has anything changed? Like, on, at a really fundamental level, yeah. I'm so curious about how, how, how good we are at actually changing some of these things. Because we say yeah. it, we talk about it, but as I've get, gotten older and older, and as I've done more and more of these interviews, I tend to find that the, like, real fundamental stuff is never healed. It never goes away. And I actually think that's really good news for people mm. because there's a lot of people that are trying to sell you on this bullshit that they can mm. take your traumas or your, your insecurities to zero. Yeah, I've never seen it happen. No, that's all wrong. And even, even Stoicism, in a way, is sort of um, a little guilty of that. Um, even something that's talk about, talking about rolling with the punches of life is still kind of suggesting that, and if you get this right, you won't be disturbed. You, know, you won't experience anxiety. That is all, that's a little bit off, really. I think the, na- the nature of life is that it is, it is difficult, and uh, not all the time, but a lot of the time things really go badly, and they certainly don't go as you planned, and you know that you actually, as you start to get older, you realise your plans probably have nothing to do with how things are, are turning out, but the illusion that they are is what propels you through the first half of life. Um, so, uh, actually, I think the project the task, our task is um, a certain amount of, is a sort of personal development and in integrating ourselves with the parts of us that we are uncomfortable with. So again, that's the project of relating to what's difficult within ourselves and then how we do that in life as well, how we relate to things that are difficult and, and tricky in life. Because the, the thing about it, although that experience can be very... Um, isolating those feelings of you know when life lets you down or you feel you fail they tend to be quite isolating experiences um like shame right that's a very isolating thing whereas actually and weirdly this is i'm doing this show showman at the moment and this is entirely what the show's about those isolating experiences like they're exactly the things that join us all up that is the that is the human experience how how do we deal with the difficulties of life you know when things are going badly and we feel like we failed, that's, that's what we all have to find our way through. So the things that feel most isolating are the things that tend to connect us. Um, so I don't think it's about trying to bury them under sort of, you know, some sort of forced optimism. And it isn't about reaching a nirvana of, of um, a problem-free life. I think that's uh, it's a really sort of terrible project because you're going to end up blaming yourself for for failing you weren't a good enough stoic or you weren't a good enough optimist or whatever um always reminded me of the faith healers that i um spend a lot of time watching and when they do that thing of saying throw away your pills and if your illness returns it's because you didn't have enough faith like it's your fault uh and that's no different from the you know the the secret you know the um the the law of attraction yeah but it's the same (laughs) thing it's the same thing you have to completely commit yourself and if it doesn't work out if the universe doesn't provide you with it's always jewelry and money and cars a bit odd um then you didn't have enough faith um it wasn't you know it was your own fault um so it's a perfect cycle of uh blame um uh which exonerates the um the actual system completely and puts the blame uh, entirely on on you. So I'm yeah I. Uh, 
there's a bit of an irony in the fact that people choose those books because they they don't want responsibility but failure puts responsibility back on them because i think of like the the law of attraction i actually had a mm. conversation with um a girl I was dating many years ago in New York and she actually got out of the cab and walked off because I said to her that I, she believed that she could visualize anything into existence. I went, so you mm. believe that you can just think about something and then it mm. will happen. So you could think about becoming a billionaire and it happened. She went, yes. And I was like, no, I don't agree with that. And I go, but, but how? She goes, you put out into the universe and then it comes back. And what they're doing in that, to me, it seems like they're alleviating their own sense of responsibility. They're putting mm. it up to the puppet master in the universe. Mm. But as you've described then, when that fails, the blame is ultimately on them for not doing yeah, it. Yeah, right. it must be your fault. As opposed to it was just a bad idea to to begin with. And more helpfully, how do we live comfortably with a universe that doesn't give a fuck what we what our plans are? Well, why why would it? It doesn't make any sense. So how do we how do we navigate? And that there's a there is an ancient uh, sort of image. It's it's appeared in so many different forms of an x equals y diagonal. So if you imagine a graph and you've got along one axis, you've got the x axis is the stuff you want to achieve in life, your aims and your plans. And then the other axis, the y axis, is just life, what they used to call fortune. It's all the stuff that just gets thrown at you. Um, if you imagine the line that we lead in our, in our lives, it's a sort of an x equals y line, right? It's sort of an undulating line. So sometimes... Our plans are winning and we're doing great and sometimes life's throwing stuff back at us that we have no control over and things have gone horrible and someone's got ill or whatever it is. So we're, there's this sort of undulating X equals Y diagonal where we're being pulled in these two different directions. That's what we live. That's just sort of reality. And the nature of the kind of the American optimistic model is that by believing in ourselves... We can, and this is an old, it's an old hangover from Protestantism, um, this sort of work ethic, that you can, by believing in yourself, you can crank that line up so it's in line with your aims and your goals. Um, and we just, it's, it's a, we've completely obliterated the idea of just fortune and life from that. You know, we used to, we used to call people, um, unfortunate now we call them losers you know so there's a there's a, a a lack of respect now for just the fact that life is throwing stuff back at you so how do you how do you navigate that and i think actually stoicism is a very good toolkit for and stoicism as i'm sure pretty much all of your listeners will be familiar with but the the bottom line of it is is that you know the the the, the things in life it's not the things in life that cause your problems. It's the, the story that you tell yourself about them. It's the judgments that you make about them, which is a very good and sensible idea that's made its way down to us um, over the last couple of thousand years. And then allied to that, that you take all the stuff that you have no control over, outcomes, what other people do and what they think and so on. And you can just decide that that stuff is fine as it is. And you can just focus on the stuff, only try and change the stuff you can actually change, which is the world of your own thoughts and your own actions. And that's where we should put our attention. And then there's interesting, there is a middle ground of, uh, you know, like if you're, well, success of any sort, you know, there's parts of that you're in control of and parts that you're not. So it's like a, a best analogy I've read for it is a, like going into a game of tennis. If you go in determined to win and then your, uh, your opponent is playing better than you, you're probably going to get anxious and you're going to feel that you're failing. Whereas if you go in determined to play as well as you can, Again, just to control the part you're in, you're in charge of. Then uh, it sort of doesn't matter if your opponent's a bit better than you, or they start to win. You're not, you're not failing. You know, you're, and the same goes for um, 
you know, the, the Stoics were big movers and shakers. You, if you want to change the world, you can, but you're only going to emotionally commit yourself to your intention and your actions, not the outcomes, which may happen a generation after you've, after you've died. You know, that's something out of your hands. I, th- I think all that's very helpful and very useful. The only thing, if you see it as a toolkit, um, to be lent into when it's helpful. But the, uh, even that, uh, if you take it as a sort of a, you know, almost like a spiritual way of life, can fall into the um, problem of, and therefore we shouldn't have any anxiety, therefore anxiety is still somehow the demon. But, you know, without anxiety, how do you know to change anything in your life? How do you know to change your job unless the current job is making you feel bad or, you know, things have to become anxious and things have to fall away in order for us to move forward and grow and we you know you can't do that without embracing anxiety to to an extent as i've aged i've started to um realize that the kind of compass of my life is how i feel and that's kind of what you've um, alluded to there that we have this signal Mm. sometimes it comes in the form of anxiety sometimes it comes in the form of fear but these are all like really useful signals um Mm. do you resonate with what i just said there in terms of like feelings that our body is giving us are the greatest signals for our for us to navigate versus like narratives versus like what my mum wants or you know, I end up in a working in the city in like a suit and a tie because that's what society had an expectation of. But I'm feeling a signal inside, which is, I don't know, depression or I'm feeling, mm. you know. I think those things are very important to, to listen to. I think we we do live out stories very easily. We do tend to... Uh, see things in terms of a narrative and that's um it's an interestingly double-edged thing because on the one hand whether you know someone's written in or out of a story has become very important language and harm and all of those things have all got suddenly very tied up and store the very notion of story has become so important um taking authorship of your story and so on but the other the other side to that which you know i live out in my in my job as a magician is that stories are just stories you know if, if a magician fools you with a trick in a way that works you what you're being shown is that your story that you were forming of the world isn't quite right like there's something you missed and you always feel like you've properly paid attention you saw everything you you were taking in all the information but it shows you that you've missed something that your narrative of what reality is isn't the same as the world um and uh so the 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 story side of things is seems to be part of just our, our our makeup, but it's important not to fall in love with it too much and to realize that the nature of a story is that it it's there's stuff you're excluding there's a, an image of, isn't there of telling a story over a campfire in a clearing and it's cozy um but then there's all the forest in the darkness with all the stuff that you're uh excluding from that story and that's where the monsters live and the nature of monsters that they come and bite you and all the stuff that we don't include in a story whether it's the story we tell about uh, tell ourselves about ourselves um or whether it's a story we tell ourselves about our nation or our culture whether it's a social thing or whether it's a private thing the stuff that we bury and the stuff that we don't include within the narrative because the narrative is really too simple is goes deep like it's get, it sort of gets buried it gets buried in our own unconscious or it gets buried in the untold story of whatever the thing is and that's what comes back and bites us that's the the, the stuff that comes to own us in our own lives and and in our uh, you know in, in our societal lives as well as the stuff that we've 
buried. And I think as you as you get older, and this is where that those feeling signals come in, I think it becomes more and more important to pay attention to the things that we are banishing from our stories. You know, what what do we if we think about what makes us feel resentful or what we envy or you know, what are what are those things? Because those are the things that we're bearing somehow. And I think there's a shift in the second half of life, and I'm obviously I'm a chunk older than you, but um where we can disengage a bit with the the story that we've been telling of how to move forward in life. That's all about a dialogue with the external world. That's where we're getting our cues from. People showing us what we need to be successful, what we need to look or act in a certain way that denotes moving forward and progress. And we do that for the first half of life, and it is sustained a little by this optimistic illusion that the char- that the castles that we're chasing in the air that we'll reach if we just, you know, a lot of happiness deferring going on and a lot of, you know, focusing on the future. And then something happens around midlife where actually the project shifts to taking the cues from within rather than from the outside world. And I think then that's a good time for priorities to shift from what will give me success in the future to what is actually what, what might bring pleasure and satisfaction and meaning now in the in the present. I think that's a, a useful thing to lean into towards the second half of life. It was university that's um, sort of sparked your interest in hypnosis, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw someone on campus doing... Martin that. Taylor was doing a show. Yes, it was in my freshers' week. And oh, wow. Uh, wow. I thought it was amazing. And I, I left and walked back that night with a friend and said, I'm going to learn how to do this. And my friend Nick said, oh, yeah, so am I. But I knew I meant it. I knew that. I'd never seen it before. Never come across hypnosis. I obviously had heard of it. but um, And it was a good show. Like, it wasn't, you know, embarrassing people and making them look stupid. It was sort of just jaw-dropping. Um, how did you know that you meant it? Because I've had that feeling in my life before where something just connects. Yeah. Well, I think it was the, again, those boxes were being ticked. Something about performing, something about control. Uh, I didn't really know it. It just felt like I want, I, I have to do that. It's the most amazing thing I've seen. And it was, uh, it was appealing in ways that just weren't really, um, ways I hadn't really thought about. I hadn't thought about performing, hadn't... Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's what's happening, isn't it? There's something is it's resonating unconsciously. It's something that you kind of need, and yeah, it was absolutely no. There was no doubt. So I I just bought, borrowed, stole any books I could find on the subject. You probably just learn on YouTube nowadays, yeah. but it's a, probably a dodgy thing because you need to you need to learn it the long way round, so that if you run into problems or if someone's having a weird time when you're hypnotizing them you you can't be like fumbling around trying to google what to do you know you need to have the skills there and the, the wherewithal to to deal with it so I, I definitely learned the long way around uh yeah and then you became i think from what i was reading pretty obsessed with mm. magi- magic and hypnosis and yeah. to the point that you have a conversation with your parents and you tell them that you kind of yeah, I remember saying to my mum, I think I'm not going to be a lawyer. I was studying uh, law and German. I said, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a, um, a magician. I said, oh, fine. That sounds great. Sounds much more fun. Which actually made me stop and think, okay, hang on. I'm probably being a bit, <laughs> probably being a bit rash. Um, what did they say? So they were okay with it? Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what she said. She said, oh, that sounds great. Sounds much more fun. It's nice, isn't it? Actually, I wrote them a letter at the end of my first year saying, because I, I saw all these other law students 
really fretting about their exams because of what their parents were going to think if they didn't pass. And that had never occurred to me as a thing that your parents would make you feel. So I uh, wrote them a letter thanking them for for that, just for um, letting me always do what I wanted to do. The only thing they ever put any pressure on me to do is learn how to drive, and I don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> you still don't drive? I still don't drive, yeah. It's 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 quite a common story, I have to say, that um, your obsession seemed to come from, or at least be driven by, some kind of insecurity. As in, like, the reason why hypnosis initially resonated so much was because it was giving you some it felt like it might offer you something that you were looking for or didn't yeah, have yeah, yourself yeah that's the story i hear all that's the what time obsessions are, though, isn't, it? isn't that the nature of them aren't your own yeah, it's just that the level of obsession i saw went from that day when you discovered hypnosis like yeah. getting all the books teaching yourself yeah, yeah and then even beyond university where you start working in restaurants for Doing many magic, many years yeah. how long how long from that first day when you saw hypnosis for the first time until um let's say before you the, the TV stuff began. How long is that sort of tenure? I think the tenure is about is about ten years. Ten I th- years. I think so. Let me think. So I I graduated ninety four, and then uh, by that point I was doing the odd um, hypnosis show for students. I oh actually the no, the first TV show went out in December two thousand. So I was into all... It was about 10 years, but that also included my university career. But there was a six-year period after university, by which point I was already doing it, mainly for students, when I was just then signing on or just about scraping a living, doing hypnosis shows, but a lot more magic. I was doing magic in restaurants in Bristol, and then people would book me for their parties. And um, and I wrote uh, a book for magicians, which kind of got me known within that world, which that then led to... Um, being picked out for a TV show that, that led to me getting a phone call, my name getting uh, passed around in that world. So that's almost ten years of practicing, yeah. and um, without re- any real money. When you say signing on for people that are in America, signing on as in welfare, I guess you'd call yeah. it. Yeah, I was, I was, I lived in a, my student flat. I stayed in. It was quite a nice flat. I had all my books in it, my parrot, and uh, that didn't cost me very much. And I just loved this life. I would go out dreaming up magic tricks during the day and then I would go out and do them in the evening. And um, so I developed my own sort of approach to it all. And uh, that, uh, yeah, that I, I, I just remember thinking, I, I've never had any ambition at all. And, and I just remember thinking, if I, if I can take a, like a, a cross-section of my life, is everything in the right place? Like, am I, I'd like to get up whenever I'd like to get up. I'd like to feel I can make my own decisions about what I do from day to day. And I just had a vague idea of those sorts of things that were important to me. And um, and if anything didn't feel right, it'd be easy to sort of change. And that was all, that was always how, it was never about looking forward into the future. It was never about where do I want to be. It was just, is this day, this week, sort of the life that I'd like to be living? And that's never changed. Um, I suppose the difference is, as you get successful, you start to have people around you that are doing those other jobs for you, the grown-up jobs, and you know I've got a manager and I've worked with producers and all that kind of thing. So it's not like that doesn't have to happen somewhere along the line, but it, it doesn't come from me. I've, I've, um, I, it, it, you can feel like a, a kid a little bit, a bit like a child in a world of grown-ups. So I feel that sometimes, except now the grown-ups are younger than me, which is uh, strange. Um, 
But also I think maybe that's a good way to feel. Maybe that's a nice way to be. If you contrast yourself from today yeah. to the to that young man in those restaurants in Bristol doing the magic yeah. tricks, is there a difference in your level of happiness? I think about this. I I I think it's about the same, but it's different. I mean, the the um, a bit like being a kid and playing on my own. Most of my twenties were well, my twenties were sort of fairly fairly solitary as well, and that's another template that settles in. So um, that's again an easy place to go back to. I love my own company, all my interests, the things I love doing, out of my job, painting, writing, and reading, and they're all like solitary things. That's a that's a comfortable place for me. So. Part of me, had more of that then, so slightly misses that, but actually that's, you know, also aware it was, that was lonely sometimes. And, um, you know, I like being in a relationship too. So it's different, had a different feel about it. Um, I think the, the freedom to just do what I wanted to do and kind of um, create this sort of world for myself that was kind of lovely and it's harder to do that as you grow up and you do have responsibilities and you know you're contributing to a household and you've got a partner and you've got dogs and all of that it's not not quite as easy so the, a childish part of me would kind of quite like the idea of going back to that but not really not really I wouldn't really press a button and make it happen it's just a a nice little sort of back of the head dream as we probably all have maybe don't we a slight kind of fantasy thing if we'd never really live it out but it's just something nice about about that um it's almost like um i feel like you were in my head it's like you, you know you were in bristol minding your own business enjoying the the simple life yeah. and then they pulled you they ripped you out of bristol um you were really successful so they put you on tv that was really successful mm. and sometimes when people are successful they sometimes forget and i think i've done this in my life a few times kind of we forget to take the moment of pause and consider how intentional this journey and direction and direction of travel is kind of get pulled and dragged mm. and then it ends up feeling a bit like you're throwing the coal in the the steam engine of the train just to keep it moving has mm. there ever been a moment of pause in your life where you've you've gone do you know what i need to take some time and just think about what i'm doing and why i'm doing it because i've been successful and then i've climbed the ladder people do that a lot in the corporate world they become a good lawyer then they get promoted then they're a partner and they go mm. fuck am i doing here mm -mm. yeah i think we have, we drift towards the things we're second best at it's like you know the, the the great teacher that becomes a headmaster but would have been a better teacher than uh that's an easy thing to do isn't it um and i think that's sometimes i think about oh it might be quite nice to act I think I'm doing exactly that thing of sort of going from being um, someone who's really good at what I do now. And I just to sort of, why, why would I want to do that? It might be fun, but like what a strange thing. We naturally start to drift towards things that we're not as good at. Um, uh, I, the only, I would say when you said that, I was thinking of um, the, early, the early TV shows when I was sort of, which were very much a response to David Blaine's success in the States. So I'm out doing, you know, mind reading tricks and things and I I kind of felt like I'd grown out of it but I was that was sort of the mode that I was caught in and I definitely felt like I'm not really enjoying this and that led to a shift in the type of shows I was doing so the I mean the last show I've done is on Netflix called Sacrifice if people have no idea who I am and they've listened this far um, uh, and generally what I've been doing for the last decade or so with the TV shows is putting people through these kind of Truman Show style, big social experiments, often quite life or death 
situations they found themselves in without realizing they're part of a show. And what that allowed me to do was not be the center of attention. And the reason, the reason for it is actually, apart from just my own like, dissatisfaction with it, but just magically, if you, um, if you can click your fingers and make anything happen, which is sort of what a magician does, dramatically that's a very um, unsound uh, place to be. And this is, you know, Penn and Teller? The, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so something that Teller, who apart from being a beautiful magician, is a wonderful thinker as well. And he's spoken a lot about this, that it's actually very bad drama if you can make anything happen. What we want dramatically are heroes, people that are struggling with a situation. Maybe they are trying to get to point A, but actually they end up at point B. Um, and his thoughts and my own sort of, sort of dissatisfaction, I guess, with that first stage of my career led to this shift where I could be in the background pulling the strings, but actually you're watching a real member of the public go through quite an intense drama. And that has to be more appealing than somebody going, hey, look at me, aren't I clever? Which is sort of the bottom line of what most magic is. So I think that was a kind of semi-deliberate uh, shift that came from a moment of pause. Was it quite intentional for you to take, you know, I've seen multiple documentaries you've done where you're proving that magic or the supernatural isn't mm. real. Mm. And again, that's super compelling because we would expect you to be leaning into that and persuading mm. us of the supernatural. Mm. Whereas some of the most compelling stuff I've watched you do, whether you're confronting like a psychic that's pretending mm. to speak to the dead, or I remember that reading you did where the woman had pulled up outside in the Mercedes, in the Mini. Oh, in a Mini, yeah. Yeah, and you had, you basically, what was it? You, you, um, you read her... Not her future. You read into her life. I think it was that the psychic that I was challenging had mentioned... Um, the Mini. Yeah. ...that she drove a little red Mini, and she'd been really impressed by that. But actually, <laughs> I'd seen him pull up his car uh, right parked next to her in the car park. Yeah, but actually, I think it's the opposite. I think the um, there's a long tradition of magicians pulling apart psychics and charlatans. And I think it's because we end up with a knowledge of how those things work. Um, and it goes right back to... Houdini and the seances and yeah, exposing the fraudulent mediums in the dark. You know, it's a long, a long, and probably before that, but there's a long history of it. Um, so I, the only thing about it is that you're, if you're just going, no, this is fake, you're not being very entertaining. And by the nature of what those people do, it's more entertaining. So they've kind of won the game. So I've tried to avoid making, when I, when I have sort of, you know, attacked those areas, rather than just attack them and make it negative. I've always tried to recreate something and make it more interesting and, and better while at the same time saying I'm not really doing this. So, for example, there was a, in one of the shows I did, I had an audience on stage. This was in Infamous, which was a previous uh, stage show. And I um, was giving them mediumship readings right so i say just come up if you've lost somebody if there's somebody that you would that you'd want to get in touch with if you went to see a medium and it's skeptical audience kind of like me right because they're my audiences but so they'd come up and sit down and i would start to give them these readings and i would say you know i'm getting a message from your auntie jill is that right Do you have an auntie jill that passed away that yes and she's saying she's not saying anything i'm just making this up but she's saying that you've got oh you've got a little dog called bella that she really loves is that right yes and um, and I'm lying to you, but she said. And so I, I would like pepper these like impossible information that I was giving with reminders that I was making it up. Um, and I just found that really, really sort of interesting. And and um, theatrically, it was really interesting and much more interesting than saying these people are fake and 
prove it. And if you can prove it, I'll give you a million dollars, whatever. So I've, I've tried to find a more creative approach to that. Do some people um, think you are, you are supernatural in your powers? Some, well, I was going to say, actually, after that, about a week into that show, I came out, there was a girl at stage door said, um, I wondered if you could put me, I say girl, she was, you know, you know in her twenties, but I wondered if you could put me in touch with my grandmother who's passed on. And I said, oh God, I'm so sorry. I hoped it was clear from the show that I can't really do it, that that stuff isn't real. And she said, oh no, no, I know, I know you can't really do it and it's not real, but I just wondered if you could just put me in touch with her. Like it was extraordinary. Um, how we kind of can balance these things in our, in our heads. So yeah, I, I, I'm sure people believe all sorts of things about me. I think the the way of the way I look at it is a bell curve. So at one end of the bell curve, it's people that think it's all fake, it's all stooges, it's all set up. Um, and I never use stooges, and that's not what it is. And at the other extreme, people saying I'm psychic and I won't admit to it, which is also not true. Um, and then there's this main swell in the middle where people sort of get it, um, and that's really all you can, I think, take. Uh, responsibility for really there's always going to be people at the far edges that will have uh, strange and extreme reactions um, and then you know my, I think there's a certain license on stage which is different from TV if you're doing stuff down the barrel of a TV if you're talking to people at home mm. there's a level of directness and honesty there whereas it feels like on stage there's a kind of theatrical quotation marks around the whole thing so I feel like I can do things on stage which I wouldn't do on TV um, so that changes it too it's quite an interesting line sort of treading treading that I kind of uh, in the very early shows very early TV shows it was very much like I'm I am doing this for real that's what I said these are, these are not tricks um, and then once the shows realized once we realized there was going to be some longevity and there were going to be more shows it was important to me just to bring it back to a place that was honest and kind of ambiguous as well and to and I've enjoyed that now I like leaning into the ambigu ambiguity of what I'm doing because again it 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 means that you can do more interesting stuff with it. The, you know, if there's a lesson in it about how we see the world, how the story we tell ourselves is not what's real, how we mistake that story for reality. You know, we mistake the limits of our own um, field of vision for the, for the horizons of the world. You know, if, we, if there's something in there to be said in something as childish as magic, if there's some something worthwhile to be said, it's much easier to say that if you're not trying to make it about yourself. Has anything ever stumped you in terms of the supernatural? I, you know, I was. Mm -hmm. Your work is predominantly based in psychology, right? So, has there have you ever done anything and thought, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> uh, two things come to mind. One, I was in a restaurant in Bristol, approaching a table, which is always excruciating. Um, uh, if people don't, aren't interested. And I'm walking up with a deck of cards and I sort of introduce myself and it's two businessmen and one of them says, oh no, no thank you, sorry. And I said, okay. And as I walked away, the other one went, but Queen of Hearts, 13 cards down. And I sort of laughed and walked away and then went into a corner and counted the cards down and the 13th one down was the Queen of Hearts. No idea how he did that. <laughs> if you are listening, please get in touch. It has bugged me for 20 years. And the... Um, the other thing was actually doing, I did a show called Miracle, which is, so this, this is also on Netflix. It was a uh, previous uh, stage show, uh, or a few stage shows ago. And the second half was healing. It was like evangelical uh, healing, people being slain in the spirit and um, had no idea if it was going to work. Because again, very skeptical audience, like not, you know, if you I've been to these events with these big, big name healers and 
of course, people are arriving expecting it to work and they've got a certain amount of, you know, uh, readiness for it, which obviously helps. And I didn't know if it was going to work at all, but it did. And again, I'm sort of undercutting it like I'm I'm doing it and I'm creating these healings in inverted commas for people in the audience. But at the same time, I'm kind of undercutting it, too. But um, it was extraordinary. I mean, I remember in the first week, a woman came up and she'd been paralyzed she was probably in her 40s she'd been paralyzed on one side of her body since she was four or something in floods of tears because she could move her left arm for the first time um and night after night things like that sometimes as i imagine just you know someone people with a bad back that felt better but sometimes really quite dramatic things too and it was although i could explain it because i knew what i was doing it was um what, what you're seeing is that it's the psychological component of suffering, right? Like if you take an x-ray before and afterwards, nothing's happened, nothing's changed. But that how that person is living out their um, affliction, how they their relationship to their suffering, has that's been made to change. So what you're seeing it's just a mixture of two things that are going on there's, a, there's adrenaline which is a natural painkiller so you make the you make the whole experience full of adrenaline um and, you know in the same way if a you know lion walked into this room and you previously stubbed your toe you'd run away and you wouldn't feel the pain of your toe right because there's a bigger threat um so that's just adrenaline that's fine and then but this other thing that which is maybe kick-started by the experience of the adrenaline that you you've this thing that you've lived out like presumably this woman her arm had been fine for many years, but she hadn't. She just continued to live as if it wasn't. In all, and all the stuff that you build up around pain, you know, the, the way people respond to you. So you, there's a whole network of um, social aspects to it, overprotecting something that doesn't need protecting anymore. You know, it's much more complicated than simply the organic cause of, of, um, of your pain. There's lots of other things that sustain it and can keep it going beyond really where it's useful. So there she was having this extraordinary experience she couldn't explain. Um, when really nothing had happened beyond she was just had been snapped out of something, that was that was sort of amazing and kind of wonderful. Then I started to you know do the thing of going, oh, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could offer this as a show of like secular healing. It'll only work on some people, and you're only dealing with relatively small percentages. Um, and I did start to think that. And of course, that's where you start to go mad. That's where you start <laughs> to think you're playing God, and and then. Of course, people, because when you go to these events, the big name healers I've seen, Benny Hinn and others, um, what, you, what you don't really see when you watch those things on TV is that there are, in some of these big venues, hospital beds that have been brought in. There are people with, you know, a kid with Down syndrome that I spoke to the mum and she'd, uh, she'd taken her son to so many shows following him around the country. Um, and things that just, they're not going to get, they're not going to get healed by those kind of dynamics. Um, so that's, an uglier sort of side of that mm. because people have become very dependent on it and are not going to get any help. And then there's the lack of any sort of follow-up. You know, there's plenty of infrastructure in place if you want to donate, but no infrastructure if you've been in any way adversely affected by it and you want help. Or if you've had a healing mm. and now you you you're don't know how to sustain that or what you're supposed to do other than being told to give more money. You, uh, know, you know when um, people discovered through your TV work that you had this skill and talent mm. i imagine you've got lots of approaches to use it for less ethical reasons because i i mean 
help me would. get the girlfriend back help me close uh, the deal help me rob a bank <laughs> <laughs> a little not um I suppose people would have to ask that, wouldn't they? The, the only, I, I remember I'd been asked by the FBI, I'd been asked by the police. Really? To help. I mean, it's never gone beyond that discussion because I just, I mean, even, you know, plenty of businesses as well, but it's just, it's not my world. I feel like I, I'm an entertainer. I'm also quite um, introverted. I don't quite have that thing of like, you know, yeah, let me get out there and, and A, change the world or I don't have the whatever that thing is that I feel like I could just apply this to. What did the anyone FBI and everything? or the police want to help with? I don't know because it never went beyond them saying, "Would you come and talk to us about something?" and us getting back and saying, "No, it's not appropriate." <laughs> so I don't know. Now I want to know. You're, you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Skill stack. When I think yeah. about the you know, because there's lots of people that might have st um, studied hypnosis or they might have studied magic or sleight of hand or whatever, mm. but they didn't end up on the level you're on, at the table you're at, mm. on the shows you're on. When you think about why you got there, I understand the 10 years of the graft. And I see yeah. that in a lot of people that sit here. I see it in Jimmy Carr, leaves yeah. university, goes and does all of these like shit gigs for 20 quid for years on years yeah. and years and years. I see it in Lewis Capaldi, the mm. musician who went and played in pubs in Scotland for years and years and years and years and just absolutely yeah. loved it and wanted to yeah. stay there. I see the tenure bit, which a lot of young kids don't appreciate because we all want it now and we want it for the wrong reasons. Mm. But what else was it about you? The way your delivery, your style that you think in hindsight made you compelling? Oh, it's a really difficult one. It's to difficult. Answer. Isn't it's it? difficult. Even if I knew the answer, it'd be hard to say it. Um, I, I think. I don't think it's that. I think it's sort of. It's not quite that intentional. I think you've probably grafted and done those things. And I can't speak for Jimmy and others, but probably just because you really enjoyed them in and of themselves. You probably weren't thinking, oh, "I can do this. If I get ahead, I can secure this for myself." Pro probably. And if that is the case, if you are just doing it because you love it. And that feels like in and of itself what you're doing, and there's no particular need for a plan beyond that. Then you'll keep at it. You'll get very you'll get very good at it. If if that's if that feels like all you need in the moment anyway, why then why why wouldn't you, you know, love it and put your all your passion into it and get very good at it? So that helped. Um, uh, and then when things did sort of take off a bit, my manager also had a similar. Um, ethos of just sort of slow burn slow burn there was never any sense of me you know being thrown at a public or any sort of overnight success or anything like that it was a very deliberate thing of just slowly kind of letting it 
get out there. And that, so that was helpful. Um, I think as I've, I had a, a good team around me. Um, it's not like a one, not really a one man thing. There's always, although I had had my own experience for those 10 years of doing it on my own. Once I got into the TV, there was like a little group of us, which I'm sure is fairly common. Um, and then I think, I think what does help is letting it grow up with me as I've, as I've got older, I've just let the thing develop with me. Like it's, I don't really know what job to, you know, you asked me before we started, like how I'd refer to myself. I never really know. I mean, mentalist, I think technically is what I am, but I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I had the book on happy, happiness come out, which is essentially a book of Greek philosophy, come out the same month, the same month as a ghost train open at Thorpe Park. And I do remember thinking, I don't know what, I don't know what that is. I don't know what job that is that allows for those two things. It's certainly isn't mentalism. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, just allowing, allowing the thing to grow up with me. And in terms of like, you know, when I, occasionally, you know, people talk about the brand and so on. It's, it's, um, it's a very helpful thing, I think, just let it, let the thing just be you and not particularly be driven by the limitations of what... It, when I first started, I remember reading... I used to go on um, magic discussion forums and so on to see what magicians were saying about me. And there was a lot of like, oh, this isn't even mentalism. Like, there's a certain type of magic called mentalism. And I wasn't quite doing that. I was doing stuff that wasn't... Ten and they would, they would see that as a real sort of negative. And I always thought, well, that's, well, that's interesting that 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 would bother anybody. A, who knows what the word even means, who cares? And B, that that would, that I wasn't somehow sticking within that. Um, so, and that's another thing about playing on your own, isn't it? And um, you, you, or being, if you, if you feel like an outsider as a kid, I think as you get older, you start, you value that. That becomes like a bit of a superpower. You, you hang on to that feeling of, of um, being an outsider and you kind of use that, so that's always helped me, and I've just followed my nose for what feels fun and interesting and worthwhile. And as I've got older, I've let those things grow with me, and um, I find a lot of life much more interesting than magic. Magic's quite a childish thing, really, so it means that the stuff I find m more interesting about life, I can bring into magic. You know, I think if you've got, if you've got both feet in your craft or your art form or whatever... If, as in if the thing is feels to you so huge and expansive and all that you know, you can't, you're, you're sort of a bit overwhelmed by it and you can't move it anywhere. So if you've got one foot in that thing and your other foot in the rest of life, at least you've got some leverage then to take this thing that you do somewhere interesting. So maybe that's helped as well. I see that in your shows. I see how mm. your other passions mm. are riddled throughout the show. Mm. I remember watching your show in New York, which was just astounding. Mm. It's funny because I think of myself as a smart person. You know, I think I'll figure this out. I'll, I'll, he won't be able to um, make me look the other way or he won't be able to control my narrative. He won't be able to get me. And every single time I've been to your shows in <laughs> London, New York, they're all just, I leave in silence. I think, how the fuck did he? <laughs> yeah, like, because you're right, that like misdirection where you've got me thinking this thing. Yeah. And then the, I go, what the hell? Like, it's this constant like disappointment with myself that I'm not as smart as I think I am. Oh, that's so nice. That's like, well, but, always, it's always like, what can I, there's, you know, 2,000 people trapped in a room with me. What can I, what can I do with them? It's always, a, it's a lovely feeling to start with. And that, the, the section on when you have the, the painting. I don't want to give anything away. The painting. Is this in the show that you saw in New York? I believe it was New York. I, I've seen, I've been to two, London and New York. One with my family in London, which was many years ago, mm. about four, probably I'd say four or five, maybe five years ago. Yeah. And then the one in New York, I think was, 
was it it wasn't pre-pandemic it couldn't have been yeah it was it just before the been, pandemic it must have been yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so i'm painting well. a picture that someone comes up and thinks of a famous person then i start to and do it, a painting and then it's upside down and i flip it around at the end is that what you're thinking of yes it? yeah yeah and the, the thing that i think stuns me the most is how unbelievable you are as a painter thank you very much <laughs> <Something> <laughs> to fall back on and the fact you could do that upside down you can paint such an incredible image upside down is also <laughs> stunning um but that clearly is describing what you've described there where you've pulled in a love of painting yeah i i, I think it's yeah i think all that's really uh otherwise what's left you know just it's just hey look at me aren't i clever and that's just not you know that might be interesting for audiences for a little bit um maybe once and then that's that's kind of it so i i yeah i bring what i can to it and i just make i make sure the shows are about something else you know showman is about how the things in life that are difficult are actually the very things that we share which weirdly was written just before it was all due to go out before lockdown started and it um was going to go out the first week of lockdown and was a show about how the things in life that isolate us are actually the things that we all tend to have in common which then gets played out literally for two years during lockdown mm. um so i've always tried to make them about something else something of value um and i don't think I, I i love magic obviously but i don't think in and of itself it has tremendous value it's a childish way of impressing people so it's what you what can you bring to it that will give it value and then i think then you're into a much more interesting um worthwhile area in your books about happiness um happy and mm -hmm. a little happier one of the things that surprises a lot of people is that you're not a fan of goal setting and mm -hmm, having spoken mm -hmm. to you now i can kind of underst understand because yeah. you have a much more today mm. this week do my best approach to life but what, what's wrong with goal setting in your point of view i don't think there's anything wrong with goal setting for short-term goals so that's obviously you know can be very useful it's it's the long-term stuff i think we just get a bit hung up on it as a way of as a way of life you know a, a friend of mine um has a bit of a always been a workaholic um and uh he certainly by his own account when he was younger was made to feel that kind of needed to achieve stuff in order to feel valued you know which obviously is what most workaholics will say so he decided he was going to build up a company and and sell it and become a multimillionaire, and that was sort of the goal and then did spent and all the time that i knew him he was building up a company and um sold it relatively young and had a huge amount of money and then just didn't know what to do with his life it was miserable um and actually found himself going to a support group with a bunch of similar millionaires that had all made the same mistake and he'd sort of missed the fact that actually it was the it was the building up of the company that was is what gave him meaning in his life that was that was what was important and it's that old thing isn't it of you know the you know the arrival at the end of the journey is just it might just be taking your coat off and putting your bag down that might be all it is it's not necessarily the destination you know it's the you know it's the old thing isn't it of the journey being what was important but that was certainly he realized that um and that really changed his life actually realizing that what he thought was going to be important wasn't important um plus how do we know what's going to make us happy that so many years before you know we're so terrible at gauging that um we lose flexibility depending how we set those goals but we become too rigid in them and it's like playing it's like playing a game of chess schopenhauer talks about this that was a really good analogy that it's like starting a game of chess deciding how you're going to play and the strategy you're going to use and you're, how you're going to maneuver from the start there is this other thing playing which is you know life 
fortune stuff that's going to throw get thrown back at you so how ca- how can you decide those things why do we want goals do you think it's, it gives us a sense of certainty well we need we, it's about it's about moving forward isn't it we need to it's important because we need to navigate Meaning? through life and in the first half of life i think it is it's it's really important if you didn't have that optimistic sense that you can chase the castle in the air and somehow get it just by setting those goals uh, i think life would be very difficult i think actually it's in, i think it's important i think it i'm sure it has evolutionary value i think like it's part of our impetus so it's not a bad thing uh, really but like all those things we just need to uh, check it and just see its limitations i think a story i i see the goals that i had as a story that gave my life meaning when i was yeah younger the meaning was kind of misunderstood it was i thought if i got the lamborghini then i'd be yeah. happy and important and worthy and yeah. my shame would be alleviated but as i as that failed me yeah. i realized that um i was gonna have to set about pursuing something else which well, was those are the two problems you either get the goal yeah you succeed in it and then what or you don't and you've failed i mean you're, you're sort of and the very thing that's giving you pleasure the very thing that's giving your life meaning which is moving towards you know building up the company or whatever it is you're doing yourself out of you're 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 purposefully and intentionally moving to the point where you can remove that meaning from your life have you developed any coping mechanisms for adversity chapter 3 in your book a book of secrets is about the role friction has the relationship it has with with happiness and you've we've talked a few times about adversity but is there any any sort of tools that you've learned that you might be able to impart that have helped you to deal with when life throws shit at you? Well, the big stoic thing of how can this thing be fine? And it's not, they don't exactly put it in that language, but that's the language I found. How could this thing be fine? So first of all, is what's happened, which side of the line is it? Is it within my control? Is it my thoughts and actions? Or is it out of my control? Is it something out in the world? Of course, it's always, the latter, it's always something out in the world. In which case, how could it be fine? How could it? How could that? How could it be okay that this thing is like that? Um, and not just to go, oh, it's fine, it's fine. It's not just about saying it, but to actually let that thought sort of, you know, drip into the soul. I find that very helpful. That's also partly just my personality. My, my partner's uh, has a much more um, sort of anxious personality than I have, and that stuff doesn't help him at all. Um, but it certainly helps uh, me. Um, another thing, there's a great book by David Destino called, uh, emotional success. Um, and I thought it was great. He was talking about motivation and, um, how a lot of our tools for motivation are very sort of top down in the sense that, you know, well, if you do this for 10,000 hours or you put in an hour a day for a whatever, um, like a lot of kind of work to change one habit. And he's talking about a bottom-up approach of there are certain emotions that if you get them into place, they naturally create a more motivational state. And he, he's a psychologist, and his, when he talks about motivation, the, the way he's tested this, he's talking about where you value your future self and what your future self needs more than what you need in the moment, right? So if you take the example of, are you going to study for your exam or are you going to go out and party? Well, 
the person that is going to not party and study for the exam is valuing the needs of that future self that's done well in the exam more than the current self that sat there and would like to go out, right? So he's taking that as the sort of the world of motivation we're talking. So he sets up various um, experiments to see what can you do to maximize people's, uh, you know, the value that they place on that future self. And the three emotions, um, again and again, which help, compassion, gratitude, and having the right sort of pride about what you do, a good pride for the stuff that you do well. Not the bad sort of pride where you go, well, I'm good at this, therefore I'm great at everything, but just having a, a good sort of comfortable pride in the stuff that you do well. Um, so he would, you know, experiments would be something happens outside the room before the person comes in to do the experiment that makes them feel grateful about something, and then they come in and they have to do a task that's impossible, but how long do they spend trying to do it? And they'll spend 40% longer than somebody that wasn't primed to feel grateful before they came in. And the gratitude has nothing to do with the experiment. It's a seemingly completely independent thing. Something happens that make you, makes you feel compassion. Um, and then you come in and you have to do some task and you do it better or for longer or whatever these sort of skills are that the motivated person has more of. Um, one of the questions was, uh, uh, how many, it's always dollars, but how many dollars, like if you could have $100 a year from now, or X amount now, what would that X amount be that would balance it out? And it's normally $17, like it really makes no fiscal sense at all. But most people will say, okay, I'll take 17 now rather than 100 right, a year from now. That seems to be the number that people go for. But if you're primed to feel grateful, if you're, if you're asked the same question when you're in a state of gratitude for something, again, totally unrelated, um, it goes up to thirty-one dollars. <laughs> that was his, that was a great sort of uh, by the by finding when they did the experiment. It averaged out at thirty-one. In other words, people were valuing the future needs more than the needs now. If that makes sense, it, it, it makes could actually be shown sense. with something as simple as that. Gone. Uh, well, I, I read a bit. Chapter twelve of your book um, mm. was on exactly that, and I actually said yeah. before you arrived, I sent it to my friends. I sent that one paragraph in your book about that de that instant gratification, delayed gratification, because it. it when I say it makes sense, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. In the sense of like, I can't understand how gratitude, how making someone feel grateful with a completely unrelated incident would make them choose to have um, more money. Well, will make them yeah. delay their gratification in life as it relates does, to money. Exactly. And the, I think the reason why there's no kind of rational link, because it's, it's sort of, it's like an emotional basis. He's talking about an emotional heart that then kind of, spirals upwards because if you if you if you find yourself acting more compassionately which say just sometimes happens anyway right you might just be feeling compassion you might be feeling very grateful to somebody that then affects that person's behavior and then that feeds back and affects yours and there's a certain kind of upward spiral thing that happens that definitely puts us in i think a more just a better kind of state than say when we're feeling the opposite of those things feeling hateful and resentful. Um, does that mean so that, I do get it. I, I sorry, go on. Does that mean that people that are lower in gratitude are more short-termist in their decision making? They probably binge foods that they probably shouldn't have. They probably make other kind of reckless decisions they probably shouldn't make because of their own state of emotions and gratefulness and compassion. Perhaps. I mean, it sounds like you'd have to ask him. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think he says that in his book. But I can certainly imagine that. Again, so if you're going through your life feeling generally resentful. I can't imagine that person being very motivated. 
It's so interesting. It answers yeah. actually a lot of questions that I've had with like friends of mine where I've wondered why they make such short-termist decisions. But I think there's an emotional question mm. that I should really be asking, which is like, how do you feel? Mm. And we mm. don't we don't often pause to ask that. We kind of assume that their mm. character is they are lazy or just mm. stupid, at, like bad at decisions. Mm. Whereas really like go to work on the emotions and you can mm. change that, which is... It's a, it's a, I thought it was a very, uh, yeah, very compelling way round of looking at it, rather than the, the normal top-down approach we come across. Love. Uh-huh. You described yourself as a bit of an introvert and someone that likes their own company. Yeah. Um, sounds a little bit like me. What's your journey been like with understanding love? And then at 35, you came out. Um, what's that journey been like? Well, I've had two long relationships and then um, a few little bits in between. Um, and I think there's definitely a lot of learning in the first one that I think I've now brought to the second one. And of course, it's what we do, isn't it? So next, you have another relationship. You bring all those lessons that you can't, you can't change them and you're in one, but you, can, you get to start afresh the next time. Um, we're quite different as well. It's not like we're, we're not similar people at all. I'm, I have that sort of a bit of emotional detachment that I can easily go to. He is very um, engaged. And as, as uh, people that are a little on the anxious side tend to be very sort of hypervigilant about stuff. So, you know, packing to come to London to do this show is two very, very different worlds. <laughs> Always leads to argument. I'm kind of travel light and he's, no, no, but we might, we, do this, we might need this, we might need this, bags and bags and bags. So uh, we see each other sometimes, you know, as caricatures of ourselves because, because we're quite different in those, in those ways. My kind of stoic uh, whatever will seem to him just sometimes just to be laziness or not really um not engaging with something not that thing not being not taking it seriously and for me his his uh, what i see as uh, anxiety or impatience to him is a strong sense of justice he has a real strong sense of justice if something's not right he'll want to go and sort that thing out and fix it um uh and i think love for me is Allowing that other person to be another person. We probably start off our relationships just projecting everything we need onto a person. And we barely do them the service of, you know, allowing them to exist as, as an independent creature. We sort of, we just want them to be the thing that we want them to be. Um, and I think if relationships are going to have any longevity, at some point that has to shift into actually this person is a mystery and I might spend the rest of my life trying to get to know this person. But that's, I think that's okay. And I think that's also the same within ourselves in the parts of ourselves that we're, we're um, alienated from. Again, the things that we just put outside of the story, um, the, the, that sense of what the other is, of the great mystery, you know, it's there in magic, it's there in within ourselves, the sides of us that, you know, we need to live more comfortably with, and in our relationships as well. Here is a, a, a great mystery that we sit down with every day and have breakfast with and talk to and misunderstand and disappoint and occasionally delight at each other. And, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of wonderful and sometimes it's hard work. And, and uh, I think seeing your partner as somebody you could spend a lifetime getting to know uh, 
and as a source of wonder and mystery, I think is a uh, is a very helpful thing. One of the messages that I took from that is about expectations and being really conscious that you keep your expectations in check because when you don't, frustration and unhappiness um, might prevail. And I think about this a lot with my partner, who's the complete opposite. Mm. I consider myself to be like very logical. I need to I need to understand everything. I'm very um, maybe scientific in my viewpoint. Mm. Whatever the opposite of that is, she is. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can find yourself in conversations where the basis of reality you're conversating from is completely different. Yeah, she she will believe that a that a rock has energy and that, yeah. it, and I will obviously not believe that. But we're completely opposites. But that's also why it works because there's not an expectation that we become the other person. She mm. will tell me something she knows I don't believe. And at the end of her saying it, she will not wait for me to nod and agree yeah. because she knows I doesn't believe it, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. And it's uh, that's what when you're saying, except that we're two different people. Yeah. Actually being able to do that and her not trying to change me into like a spiritual whatever, me not trying to turn her into a scientist, yeah, sure. allows for the upside of that difference, which is like, I can marvel at the world she lives in and go, oh, that's interesting. I might try <laughs> that. You know what I mean? And also I think a big ally to that is the thing of not, which is such a, a guy thing to do, isn't it? is not fixing, yeah. not, um, most of our frustrations come from the fact we just haven't really been heard or seen or understood during the day. So we've been bashing our heads against some wall. We come home. And hers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we, they come home and then just offload this stuff. And when, because I, I know I do it when my partner does this to me, but he sort of offloads all this frustration and I'm sure you do it too, it sounds like you do, uh, is to go into this mode where we're saying, oh, well, it's okay, it's probably just this, and why don't we think about it in this different way? And we're just doing exactly the same thing they've had all day, we're just not hearing. Um, uh, but it's just not, it's not an intuitive thing, is that you sort of, that is such, a, it's such an easy mode to go into. Um, Darren, are you happy? That was the name of your book. I think so, yeah. I think, I think as I've got older, happiness is... It was easy to say. I remember being asked that when I was single for a while um, by Hugh Grant, of all people. We were sat opposite each other at dinner and talking about happiness. Maybe I was writing the book at the time. I don't know. And um, he said, are you, are you happy, though? And it was, he was said it in a sort of a mood of like, no one's really, no one's really happy, are they? Um, and maybe it's just the way he asked it, but I said yes and um, said it very confidently and felt it very confidently. And he didn't, I think he didn't know what to make of that. Uh, or maybe he just didn't believe it. And now when you ask, I still feel it's yes, but I think, I think things are more complicated. I think things are more complicated in relationships. I've got older. Um, I'm 51, and I think, I think that's a good sort of... Um, you know, I said things, things just change. The currents of life shift a little bit. So I am, but I, uh, uh, I think it's, it's a, I don't think it's about happiness, first of all. I think it's about meaning and it's about, you know, things in life that are bigger than you and what you, how you throw yourselves into those things, which is what gives religion its meaning. You know, that, that need for transcendence or finding the thing that's bigger than you. We all need it somewhere. Because if you don't have meaning in your life, that's that's when you have problems. Not really. Happiness is sort of um, a very difficult thing to pin down. But uh, and we can be unhappy. But it's when we when we feel meaningless that it's that it, things get bad. Um, it's a bit of a shit question, isn't it? Are you happy? 
in many respects. Yeah, it, it sort of is. So and it's also hard to, you know, what is it, you know, they used, they used to mean the story of a life. It was something you couldn't say about anybody until they were dying and look back over their whole life. You know, it's meant our relationship with God. We weren't even supposed to be happy on this earth because of, uh, you know, because it was something that we could only have through union with, with God. It's meant so many things over the ages, but now it does just sort of mean a mood, um, uh, which is, uh, is, is it makes it sort of a difficult one to answer. But I, I think, uh, I think life, is, life is good. It's just interesting and sometimes difficult, but, you know, ultimately good way i think life is full of shit questions and in some respects <laughs> it's like a form of misdirection the fact that i yeah we never pause to reflect if questions are actually valid because if i'd said what number is fork mm. you it mean you would mm. say that's not a valid question yeah, but, but yeah. because yeah. are you happy or the questions like have you found your passion there's an assumption in there that there's one of them there's one passion you have yeah, to go searching yeah. for it yeah all yeah. in loaded into the question and nobody, nobody, when you ask those questions, pauses to think of whether the question's valid. And then yeah. the, the, the frustration we encounter when we can't properly fit into an invalid yeah. question. I see, I see that causing so many young people so much pain because culture pops up these like questions you've got to, is it love? Yeah. Well, I love is peanut butter. Is this person butter. right for me is another, is another really unhelpful. Yeah. Well, is it love? Yeah. I mean, it alludes to a yes or no answer. And then I have to know that your definition of love yeah. What do you mean by that? Because as I was saying, like, I love peanut butter, I love my dog, I love my mum. Yeah. And it's all very unhelpful. Like, yeah. this is why I love, going back to what we said at the start, like, how do you feel? Yeah. Nice open question, which allows for a bit more manoeuvring. Yeah. And I think people are tormented by these um, invalid questions. questions. Yeah. yeah. Your show, there's nothing like it that exists in, in the event space, really on TV. I mean, I prefer doing it, seeing it in person because yeah. obviously cameras can create certain totally, dimensions. Yeah, which I, yeah. But seeing it in person just bends the, the mind because it makes almost anything seem possible in life. Mm. I'm talking about sales and ambition and creativity and imagination. If that's possible, then anything can become possible. And I think that's a cause of great inspiration. Mm. Um, so I would just implore anyone that's listening to this, if you're looking for a once- in a lifetime, very unique experience that you can't get anywhere else. They've got to go and see the show. They've got, and I really mean that. I'm not just saying, you didn't tell me to say this. I really I mean you that. There. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've, you've You'll never know, yeah. but thank you. Yeah, but I really, really mean that. It's, there's yeah. nothing like it. So great date idea, great family idea. So I'm definitely going to come. What can I expect that's different from the other shows that I've been to? Well, it is, it's got a real heart to it. This one, it, you get all the feels, as some people say. Um, it's, uh, it's, I, it's also got. I mean, it's got the best. If this is all right to say, the best reviews of anything I've ever done in wow. twenty odd years, which is nice to know because it is such a personal show. So that's a um, that's a lovely thing that it's been received so well. Um, I do swear the the audience to secrecy, um, so it's hard to go into details. Um, other than yeah, it is about the things that connect us as people and, and how the difficult things in life are the things that join us up. It's also a show based on audience participation, like like they all are. And mm. I should say, I, I would hate the idea of being dragged up on stage. So I throw out frisbees to choose people, which means it's the easiest thing to hand to the person next to you if you, you know, if it lands on your lap and you don't want to get involved. So there's no pressure to get involved at all, but it is a, it's a big show of audience participation. And it's it's more than more than people expect, I hope. We always try and make the show properly over deliver give you give you more than you thought it would i'm so excited i genuinely am. i can't wait I'm really really excited thank you so much for your time we we have a closing tradition on this podcast where yes. the last guest 
asks a question for the next guest, ah. and they don't know who they're leaving it, the question for. Oh, fantastic. I get to see it when I open the book, so excuse me if I take a while to read the handwriting. Um, oh, this is for me, right? Yes, great. Oh, God. Okay. Top or bottom? <laughs> imagine, imagine if that was the question. If you could only speak with, call, see, touch, four people for the next four years, who would they be? I feel this is quite a yeah, boring answer, but it's honest. So my mum, uh, my partner, probably my two really good friends, Sharky and Stephen. I'd have to include Jenny in there somewhere, so maybe they could alternate weekends or something. Um, yeah, friendships really meaning a lot to me now as I get as I get older. I'm not old, but, you know, getting older. I've really... I think it happens something like on your 50th birthday or something suddenly your friendships really mean a huge amount to you um and they didn't before they always did but just not in such a conscious why what changed why i don't know it's just a real real sentimental like valuing of them nostalgia as well like really um i just find myself just those kind of yeah sentimental sort of uh leanings um and my friends just suddenly, they've obviously always meant a lot to me because they've been my friends, but suddenly even more so. I love meeting up with people I haven't seen for years now. I love doing that much more than I used to. Um, so, yeah, I'm, that's it. Mum, partner, and a couple of really good friends. Um, uh, that doesn't include my dog. Z. I forgot I had, I didn't forget I had two dogs, but I have a clear favourite, which is uh, unfortunate for the, for the other one. <laughs> so I, was only, I was only thinking of Doodle, and I forgot about Humbug. It's okay, it said people, so uh, yeah. that's fine. So sorry, that's not a very clear answer, but lovely question. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the inspiration. Thank you for coming and doing this. You're someone that I've been honestly quite obsessed with since for the last 10 years, oh. watching on TV, watching on Channel 4, coming to your shows and stuff. So it feels like a real honour to get to speak with you. And as I said, I read your book In the Jungle. It was very much the basis of In the Jungle? You didn't say in that. The jungle. Yeah, no. yeah, so I took it, took a brief, I took a suitcase out to the jungle and I was I wanted books on happiness and yours was on the shelf. So I took it. Was it that one or was it Happy? It was the yellow one. Yeah. Happy. Um, and I'll be honest, I this is, sounds like a really, because I bought it not knowing it was you. Ah. interestingly yeah yeah and then when i saw i got to the jungle and i saw the name on it i couldn't i had to google to check it was you because i couldn't believe you'd written a book on happiness and mm. I, you get this a lot don't you yeah i do in fact, I, uh, uh, a while back i got a um the only time i've ever dropped my own name uh, trying to get a restaurant table um <laughs> in soho and i did and i got the table suddenly i felt uh, i pulled that off went in and then at the end of the meal the waiter said oh, would you mind signing one of your books so yeah, of course. And he came back with angels and demons. Oh, fuck. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. What, what a joy. Thank you. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.